I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today... And today we have Will Storr, author of The Science of Storytelling and many other books. And our new best friend. Look, if you have an accent, we'll be friends with you. Do you think that... Really low bar. Do you think that... English people are so tired of Americans just being enthralled with their accents. No. No. Why, why would you ever? No. I, but I don't think any American has ever had someone who doesn't have an American accent be like, oh, your accent. I, it, never in my entire life has someone who doesn't have my accent tell me that my accent is cute. We were very, very enthralled with Mr. Wilstor. I told him as much afterward. He's so. much more than an accent, though, you guys. No, he, it's. He his... actually had interesting words that he put accents on. Yeah. And thoughts that were made up of words that were all accented as well. So (laughs) So we took a dive into his book, The Science of Storytelling, which was this really beautiful blend of neuroscience and actual research that he had taken a dive into about how the brain works and how we construct our realities. And then pairing that with how our brains construct realities also mirror how stories should be told and how stories can grab our brains and all of the different within that all of like what villains should look like and why they we are drawn to them and like what what types of arcs that our human mind actually attaches itself to and so he wrote a book kind of putting all of these things together and that's what we uh, that's what we chatted about about him with right Catherine that is correct do you think I did a good job summarizing that? I think you did a beautiful yeah. job summarizing it we also really dove into the, the concept of um, what it takes to write a good villain, which is such a juicy concept because we are we are watching Vikings right now. It's kind of the only thing that we look forward to at the end of the day these days is getting in an episode or two of Vikings. And it's really, it's, it's very historical. So it's not even, it's not like watching a TV show. It's not like binge watching. This is very educational. We're doing good things for our brains. I mean, this is, it's a show that was made originally by the History Channel. So obviously it's not the same as just turning on Netflix. It's different. It's different than that. Not that there's anything wrong with turning on Netflix. You, you seem very I'm, defensive what about I'm saying this is, watching is that Vikings thing. We're doing something good for ourselves when we watch Vikings because it's really more about history than it is just about... Well, Kate's it's concerned about what you think about her. I just want to talk about how much Jonathan Reese Myers sucks. Look, and if you are a fan of free cookies, I'm embarrassed. But wait, you're embarrassed if someone's a fan of free cookies? No, I'm embarrassed that I'm calling him out if he's listening to us and I oh. apologize. I oh, don't oh, think that you're a bad person. If he's a fan of free cookies. Yes, okay. if he wait. happens to be listening right now and he's like, oh, I cannot believe that you don't think my acting is good. That's actually a very good Jonathan Reese Myers as... Bishop Hedman. And nominus poches latinum pa. If you're one of the listeners who's like, who's Jonathan Reese Myers? Just Look, do yourself a favor and Google him. But you know, he is a good looking human. I'm going to give him that. I'm going to give him that. But he goes down for me as the worst villain of all time. Why is he the worst villain of all time? Because he is the most singularly one note villain I've ever heard. And I don't know if it's the way that the, if he's written that way. You know, I'm not bad. I was just written that way. That's from <laughs> Roger Rabbit. <laughs> or actually, it was drawn, not written. Um, but it, yeah, I just, I can't tell if it was poorly written or if it's the actor's execution or if it's a combination of both, but it is the most one note villain. And you can't get down with a villain like that. You have to kind of root for them. You have to kind of, you have to understand where they're coming from. You have to think maybe they'll come around or maybe they're just so dark it's 
good. And you can't just hire a hot actor and think it's going to work because clearly it didn't work. We can debate about his, you know what? We don't need to, Jonathan Reese Myers, we're sorry we took it this far with you. You've done some good work. I really liked you in Match I really Point. liked you in Dracula. Okay? You were good in the Tudors. But, you know, before before we started this, we... Before. Before. We started. <laughs> this meaning this, this podcast. <laughs> meaning this podcast right now. We were chatting about our favorite <laughs> villains and... I am really terrified of the reality that I can't think of a, of a favorite of a, villain. Yeah. Like, I'm like, maybe this is all part of my Cruella larger. Oh my God. Who put a quarter and in her? She doesn't scare you. And then nobody will. What about Maleficent? What about any Disney villain? They're also delicious. I mean, I could name villains, but I, but none of them like, they're not like in here. This you is know, me pointing at my heart. I kind of feel like this is not everyone's going to agree with this, but what about Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice? Because he kind of starts out like a villain and that is why you love him so much. Sorry to spoil it for you if you never read Pride and Prejudice in the end. Well, th- this is the problem with bringing this up is that no one has actually read Pride and Prejudice. Uh, they just say oh, that they are you have. To, oh, okay. So you're defending <laughs> your intellectual abilities when we're talking about Vikings and then I bring up Pride and Prejudice and no one has read that. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm very complicated you are. um but i i think it's it's one of those one villain babe come on you got this what okay. a james bond <gasps> villain you know what um what, what's the 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 pussy galore pussy galore yes james bond james bond um octopussy what about joe pesci in home alone no is he he's in home alone right yeah yes. yeah 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 what marvin marvin um, and then the tall guy anyone who's listened to this podcast religiously may wonder if home alone is the only movie that kate fagan watches <laughs> jurassic park <laughs> and jurassic park the, the t-rex was a very convincing villain you know especially in the, the second one where they, they tied up the little baby t-rex because then you feel you know empathetic towards yeah. the mama t-rex okay but before you can name more villains throughout storytelling history that you relate to the idea that Will, who we will let you listen to soon, the idea that he writes about in his book is that the best villains have actually believe themselves to be doing something moral. They have some sort of morality attached to them that maybe their morality has spun out of control. And I mean, that's how I see like mm. the Velociraptor in, in general. Like it's just basically, I'm gonna stop talking. My scales <laughs> and my big claws. Will protect me. <laughs> okay, but do you have do you have a favorite villain? Oh well, I, I, because I, I I honestly couldn't come up with one because I've never thought about. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the, probably my my favorite villain of all time is going to be Dracula because Bram Stoker's Dracula is one of my favorite novels ever. Um, but he's not. He's it's because it's one of my favorite novels, not necessarily because he's so complicated. Although I'm sure it's very hard to be undead. You know, that's got to be hard. It's got to be lonely. And and when your beverage choice is so limited, I just, it's just I can basically see why blood. you get a little cranky. I think I'm thinking about this wrong because I'm thinking about a villain as in a the antagonist when the protagonist is the main character. But there's plenty of books where like, like Dracula, there is no protagonist. He is the protagonist, right? Sure. He's the antagonist and the protagonist. He is the- Or Dr. Frankenstein, Alpha and for the example. Omega. <laughs> Well, then there's the question marks like Frankenstein. If you've read that, Mary Shelley, Dr. Frankenstein, like, is he good? Is he bad? Like what he's trying to achieve because he truly believes what he's doing is correct and that he is achieving the ultimate thing. And and yet he creates one of the most tortured 
beings ever. So, I mean, that's, again, what makes an interesting villain is someone who truly believes that what they're doing is right. And you can see that and you understand that you don't necessarily relate to it. But don't you think that, and this is part of what he, what Will does talk about in the science of storytelling when it comes to like how we make ourselves the hero of our own stories, in some ways it's just the angle that the author comes at, like that changes someone from the hero to the villain. Like essentially we are all the heroes to some people and villains to other people of our own stories, right? That was deep. Do you, it's so deep that you don't even know where to take this conversation now. <laughs> so deep that we should just toss it to Will store. So deep that my baby still has not come up with one villain. Come on. You got to give the listeners one villain before we segue into our main <laughs> interview. Oh my God. One villain. Um, name of, think of a movie, think of a movie, think of a movie. <laughs> um, I'm like, um, what is, uh, Ooh, ooh, Scar. <laughs> Scar and the hyenas. Scar's not as complicated as I would want him to be, but he but is hyenas, a villain. The hyenas, And he's, yes. he stands up there and he's and he's like, Mufasa. Ooh. That's what the hyenas say. And they're also little mini villains. They're like, they're like sidekick villains, the hyenas. What about minions? Do you think minions are villains? I have not seen Despicable Me, so. Wait. Oh, I haven't. You. Haven't we've never watched any minion movies together? Nope. I've never seen a minion movie. And on that, on that note, somber note, am I the villain of this podcast? I feel that I've turned into the villain. <laughs> I'm complicated though, but I have the moral high ground because I haven't stooped to consume animated features other than The Lion King. And you, I'm the villain. Keep going. I'm the villain with your own theory about yourself. Let's bring on Will Store. Let's. <laughs> Will Storr is an award-winning writer. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Sunday Times, New Yorker, and New York Times. He's the author of four critically acclaimed books, most recently Selfie, How the West Became Self-Obsessed. He teaches popular journalism and storytelling classes in London. He is an in-demand ghostwriter whose books have spent months at the top of the Sunday Times bestseller chart, selling more than 350,000 copies in 2018 alone. And he is the author of The Science of Storytelling. All right, we are now joined by Will Storr, author of The Science of Storytelling. Thanks for being with us, Will. Uh, thanks for having me. So I actually found your book when we were in Paris in January at... Shakespeare and Company. Which oh, is, wow. Yes. Yeah. Very fancy. Very fancy. We're fancy. <laughs> um, listeners perhaps will have their memories jogged of that, that bookstore because it's, it's, it's featured in Before and After, uh, the Ethan Hawke movie, and it's a very famous bookstore. But So I found it. <laughs> I found it there, and I was so intrigued because I have, I've, I've done a lot of nonfiction writing similar to your background as a journalist, and I have been, I, over the last year, I've been trying to write fiction and for some reason I I thought my brain would be good at it and then I realized that my brain hadn't been wired for fiction so I was I was really drawn to this breakdown of neuroscience and science mixing with storytelling for for our listeners because this is a book that I'm not sure you know too many of our listeners because I, I feel like I've brought it back personally from from you know London even though I'm I, I see how Paris. wildly successful well, he's in London. Will's in London. Um, even though I see how wildly successful so many of your different books have been. But can you give a breakdown for our listeners of like the overarching story you're trying to tell in this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically based around the idea that the, 
that the brain is a storyteller. You know, we, we live our lives, we experience our lives as stories. And that's that's why we tell like fictional stories, films, novels, even nonfiction stories in the way that we tell them is because we're mimicking kind of neural processes. So to me, like that, you know, that was like a, a, a really interesting new approach to trying to analyze and understand um, uh, how stories work because, uh, you know, you've tried to write a novel when you, when you buy the, how to write a novel books, they're all based on such old ideas. It's like Joseph Campbell from the whatever sixties, seventies. And they're talking about Carl Jung and it's just like, my God. So I just felt like, um, it was time for a, a new way of thinking about story, but also now that science has sort of caught up with what these storytellers have been trying to kind of feel their way around for more centuries, really. It was like, now we could do it. So just for our, our listeners, just more, I want to go even more personal on, on how some of this science related to you when you were first, because when reading the book, you, you do share that you were more in the neuroscience research and then you started to realize how so much of what neuroscientists are studying about the way human minds work really applied to how to storytelling and writing what was it what was it about when you were in that research that you feel like was some of the things that, that changed how you saw writing and storytelling like what were those first insights that you kind of gleamed glommed onto well, really, it was so, so about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit less, I was researching a book called the Unpersuadables. And the Unpersuadables is about why crazy people, why smart people end up believing crazy things. So, you know, why mm. would somebody who has a brain, you know, vote for Trump or whatever? You know, you know, it's, 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 it's not it's not good enough. It wasn't good enough for me because people, the story at the time is that they're just stupid. It's like, well, no, actually, they're not all stupid. There's something else going on here. So so, so I, that in, involved you know, trying to solve that puzzle it meant trying to find out why we come to believe anything. And the answer that I, I kind of came to was that, was as I said, that the, the brain's a storyteller. And, and as, as long as we're psychologically healthy, we're not suffering from depression or anything like that. It's generally telling a heroic, optimistic story about who we are. We're this plucky, heroic character who is struggling against the, the odds to make our lives better and make the world um, better for other people. And the most important thing for a healthy brain is that we believe largely that heroic narrative. So we'll tend to uncritically accept any facts that flatter it and um, kind of we're very good at reject finding ways of rejecting any belief that um, goes against it. And so at this time I was, I was working on my first novel so I bought all those storybooks, and 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 so I was interviewing some of the you know some amazing neuroscientists and psychologists, and, and reading these books at the same time, and and I had this sort of big sort of light bulb moment, which was that the things that the scientists were saying about how the brain works and the mind works were the same things as what the storytellers were saying about how stories work, and I thought, well, my God, you know, it was such a it was it was such a kind of uh, weird kind of realization so, so so that's what kind of set set me on the path really it's what led me on to the kind of the answer of the book which was the, this idea that the brain is the storyteller i mean obviously not my idea that's that's it's what psychology been talking about for quite a while now um but 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 then i just wanted to pursue it much further from a, a writing point of view because that's you know that's that's i'm not really a science person by background i'm a, I'm a writer by um background um, and and the, the the other thing that, that that i thought you know was really interesting about this approach was just that, that, that when you when people think about storytelling Traditionally, they think about this kind of acts, you know, patterns of acts and, you know, story beats. And you have to do you have to go through these certain recipes to get a story. But of course, if you start with psychology, you end up thinking much more about character. And, and I thought that was really much more interesting way to think about a story about character rather than plot. 
And I think the part that you wrote about where you broke it down to even uh, cultures and where you look at ancient Greece and the landscape of ancient Greece and how it's a rocky and it's a dry, arid terrain. And then you look at Asia and it's lush with patties that's conducive to farmers and community. And Greece, it, it, I, this part blew my brain, my blue, not my brain, blew my mind. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> me and my idioms. <laughs> um. I actually went, went into that a bit more further in the, in the next book, Sel- Selfie. So, so after the Ooh, episode, okay. I wrote selfie, and selfie is, is about the self, and and um, uh, and uh, and and about culture, and 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 th- there's much more about on that stuff in that book. But that that really blew my mind when, when I when I discovered all this kind of area of research. Could be good yeah. because what what psychologists are interested in is you know, it's well known that, that there are different kinds of personality. There's your Western individualist personality, and we're speaking obviously speaking very gen- generalizations. We're talking about groups of people. We're always speaking about generalizations rather than individuals. So there's the you know Western individualistic way of thinking, and there's the you know East Asian collectivist and way of thinking so of course that's interesting to psychologists how is it that, that, that these two different cultures and ways of being have emerged and so there's this guy called Richard Nisbet that, he, that he came up with this idea they call it the geography of thought and it's quite extraordinary so the, the idea is that, you know so how did the west become individualistic and they think it started in um, ancient Greece and, it, and, and ancient Greece is this weird country that's not really a country it's like a collection of islands and kind of coastal villages and towns and in, you know two and a half thousand years ago it was a thousand little individual city-states um, and and in, in ancient Greece that the land is very bad for farming so you in order to kind of get along and get ahead and thrive in ancient Greece you kind of had to be um, a bit of a hustler you had to make pots or olive oil or poetry um, and and um, because it was lots of individual little communities people traveling around a lot and sailing around a lot and 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 so so to to survive, to thrive, you had to be this individualist, this hustler. You had to kind of put yourself first. Um, and so this individualist, this individual being the kind of the, 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 the kind of nexus of power became an ideal of self. And so they started, you know, idealizing perfect uh, male and female forms in statues and you know they, they come up with the story of Narcissus who you know fell in love with his own reflection uh, of course you know mm-hmm. great sporting events like you know uh, the Olympics then over in East Asia it's totally it's totally the opposite you've got this you know, huge landlocked country um, and so most people at this in the same period were either um, growing wheat or growing rice which are very labor intensive and in, in order to Make, or, or they're working on big irrigation projects, and, and, to, and to make that happen, you have to be a, a member of a team, a, a proper team member. Keep your head down, put the team first. And so they, the, the the theory is that you know, so that becomes an ideal of self. If you want to survive and thrive in 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 China two and a half thousand years, you had to put the group first, and and you know, not to be an, be the opposite of an individualist. And there are all kinds of different ways that um, scientists have kind of found this this to be true in in kind of people's modern psychology. Um, um, one of them is that they show uh, um, people from East Asia and um, uh, Westerners uh, uh, animations of a fish tank, which sounds a bit weird. <laughs> but, but in this fish tank, there's this big orange kind of flashy fish at the front. And what they do is they put these special like uh, eyeglasses on them, and they and then and they measure the microscopic movements of their eyeballs, of their you know of their of their kind of fovea to see what they're focusing on. And Westerners just the individualistic Westerners, um, you know, just look at the individualistic fish at the front, and 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 um, uh, whereas the East Asian people they dart around much more between the fish and the, and the 
and and the uh, context, the environment. So they're much more aware of things being connected. And when you take them out of the lab, you say, you know, what did you see? And the, and the East and the, and the Westerner will go, oh, I saw a fish. And the East Asian person is more like to say, well, I saw a fish tank and there always are things going on. So they, they, so they experience a different world than we do. And it has, and it really matters because then they, they say, tell me about the fish. And the Westerner goes, oh, that was the fish was the hero. He was that person, that fish was, you know, he or she was the leader. I liked that fish. Whereas the East Asian person would go, oh, I feel sorry for that fish. It was alone. It was by itself. It must have been rejected. So, 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 so it's really amazing. So, that, so, so it look, looks like these you know, very different ways of thinking and experiencing reality um, have their roots in how we were um, surviving and living two and a half thousand years ago when these kind of cultural norms were created. I, you know, I love the idea of Odysseus being the OG hustler, you know, according to your philosophy. I, I think I want to make a T-shirt about that. <laughs> um, and I, I feel like I, I feel kind of ashamed because reading your book, I'm like, God, I'm such a Westerner. You know, when you were explaining the difference between the two and even, you know, think of like Kabuki theater and and the, the Japanese approach and, and how with so much of their theater, you know, they leave it open ended. They don't neatly package it like Westerners like to they leave it open for you to interpret which I am that person I hate that I hate it when movies do that to me I hate it when play I'm like no tell me I want to know you need to spoon feed it to me right now and it actually leads me to my next question because in college I studied film and art history and literature and I often noticed how many pieces of those worlds that would go unnoticed to me without the influence of the professor's insight, you know, without the ability to, to take this piece of art, to take this famous novel and to have the professor dissect it for us. And then all of a sudden it blossomed into this amazing uh, work that I'll, I'll never forget, but had I read it or seen it or witnessed it on my own, I'm not sure I would have picked up on any of these nuances. Like Citizen Kane, you write about that all the time. I don't know if I would have liked that movie at all had I not studied it in a film class. So I'm just wondering, do you think, like, is it elevated storytelling if it needs an explanation? Or has it, I, I don't like the idea of it failed in some way, but you know, it, how smart do you have to be to pick up on how genius something is? That's a really good question. I mean, that's a really great question. I mean, since, I mean, for, for, for my perspective, you know, I didn't go to university. I didn't study story. I failed all my exams at school. I was a dropout. You are an inspiration. Well, that's what we like in America, Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, we're, you're like in good company. You know, nobody taught me how to read anything like Shakespeare or anything like that. So, so, so I, I, I never picked up on these nuances. And I think part of the reason I became kind of obsessional about working it out because I had to work it out for myself. I never had a professor to, to, to hold my hand. Um, and, 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 and it's interesting when we say Citizen Kane, you know, Citizen Kane was one of those store, one of those films that I watched because I kind of felt I had to, and maybe I should mm -hmm, learn totally. something. And I didn't really like it. <laughs> you know, it was kind of boring. Just Rosebud, Rosebud, Rosebud. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but then, you know, looking at it, but, but it is undeniably a successful film. I mean, it's, it's, it's always popping up in people's lists of best films ever made. And I, and, I, and I do think it's because, you know, it's 1941 that was made. So it's a really early uh, film. Uh, and um, it, it, for me, it was success. It, I don't think it would have been successful if it was made now. But at the time, I think it's, it was successful and it's become legendary because it was 
unbelievably psychologically true. You know, they re- so the writers of that film really had nailed something profound about the human condition. And that, and mm-hmm. in the book, I use it to talk about this idea from, you know, from neuroscience and psychology that was that, that wasn't discovered until you know the seventies, eighties, and that's this idea of um, confabulation. This idea that that voice in in our, that we have in our heads, that's that the narrator of our days, is always you know is this kind of gentle liar and is telling us. T- telling us a story about about who we are now, about how you know how we are motivated by the moral good, and we want only want good things in the world, and we're a we're a hero. Whereas actually underneath that, th- th- there's often another truth. There's another sort of darker story about who we are, which we're very good at ignoring. And that's the story of Citizen Kane. You know, he has this very powerful narrative that he wants to be successful because he, he, he uh, 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 of this kind of altruistic feeling for the for the working uh, person. You know, he, he wants to look after them because because they're exploited by capital. But actually, what the film is telling us is that this isn't true. The guy is a, is a, you know, he's a narcissist. He, 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 he <laughs> wants to be loved. He wants attention. You know, he's a celebrity. He's, 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 he's Trump in a sense. You know, he, he's this kind of famous, um, uh, kind of becomes this kind of famous figure on the on the on the national stage in America because he just cannot get enough validation and so 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 so, so it has an extraordinary kind of depth and psychological truth uh, that film that, that really was um unusual for a you know a film made in that time and place all right so you, you just mentioned this idea of like the darker story inside all of us and I, that was one of my key takeaways from reading this book was that like, although much of the book is about how like our brains work and how we can apply that knowledge in writing, that idea that it's your mind's job to protect you from any sort of side story that undermines your own belief that you are the hero and you have all these qualities and you are moral. It really, it, it, it really made me think about like times in my life where someone has said something that I've heard passed along to me that like just shook me to my core. Like, Oh my God, people think that I'm that because that has nothing to do with how I have always perceived myself in the world. And I like these were all really clever, like insights to apply to writing. But even more than that, I feel like the book is really showing us how our, minds work in everyday life, regardless of whether we ever want to put pen to paper. And I want to like, did you, did you like, did you want people to read this and think that it affects their day to day life as well? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. That was always my goal was that this was going to be, it was kind of, it's kind of a how to tell stories book, but really it's a, it's a, it's a book about human life and it's a book about you know the brain as a storyteller and all the problem, the re- the realities of that, and all the problems that it that it, that it creates. I mean, a story is about problems. It's about s- stuff going wrong, and, and and the stuff that goes wrong in great stories is the same ha- is the same stuff that goes wrong in real life. It, it, and so, it w- yeah, it was always my intention to 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 make this much more than a kind of how to tell story storybook. In fact, the, the, when I submitted the first draft, it got sent back because they said, you're not telling us how to tell a story. So I had to, yeah. I had, to <laughs> had to add that big appendix at the end because I'd forgotten. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so that was going to have to be addressed in the second draft. But, but, but yeah. And it's interesting you, you mentioned the, the moral kind of side of things, because I, I found that fascinating that, you know, psychologists believe that the most powerful bias the mind has is, is is that moral one the one that tells us you are a good person 
And so, mm-hmm. you know, the story that, 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 that brains tell, again, assuming that we are um, generally psychologically healthy and we're not suffering from, you know, a disorder is that, yes, we make mistakes sometimes, but 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 ultimately we're good people. We're justified in our acts, um, you know, and our brains are really good. And when we do something that we kind of enter that state of distance about, you know, is that did I do the right thing? Our brains are so good at, you know, we might, we might wobble for a bit, but eventually we'll, we'll decide, yeah, well, you know, they had it coming to them and I was totally justified in, you know, we, we've all been there. And that's a bias. You know, that's such a powerful part of our storytelling brain. And, and it, you know, it's, it's kind of essential in a way because otherwise we'd be constantly hating on ourselves and doubting ourselves and it would be terrible not to have that bias. But it is a bias and and um, it is something that, that, that everybody, I think, gets wrong about themselves. You know, I don't think any of us are as holy as we, we tend to think. Yeah. Catherine has a quick question, but I wanted to jump in. We were watching the show Einstein a couple of years ago. And even though this is the most obvious statement, Einstein's wife, who was sick of Einstein choosing himself and his pursuit of science above their family at one point was just like, you know what? I need to be as charitable to his decisions as I am to my own. And I, and I, and like, even though that's so common, it like kind of shook me a little bit because I realized how much I was lacking in that trait of being so charitable to my own decisions and so lacking in charity to the way other people behaved. But I didn't want, I jumped in on my wife here, so she's going to. Well, it's all, it's all the same thing. You, you have this great part, um, speaking of, for the writers who are listening, and if you're trying to create a villain, you researched and, you know, most writers think that it's like greed or sadism that drives a villain. And that with your research, it's actually high self-esteem and moral idealism that drives people to do bad things. And I was just like, as a writer, I just found that so fascinating because when I read something or when I watch something like most people will assume, like, I want to love my villain. Like, I don't want to just hate them. I have to kind of be like, yeah, 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 I see where you're coming from. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the people who, who commit the greatest acts of evil are, are the ones who are most convinced that they are holy and moral and doing the right thing. And that's what gives them their their kind of great drive. And, and, and I think in great drama, it's this clash of two people who are equally convinced that they're the hero. Yeah. So when I'm teaching this, I show the clip from that famous Aaron Sorkin clip. You can't handle the truth of Tom Cruise <laughs> and uh, Jack Nicholson because what Aaron Sorkin does is he's, you know, Aaron Sorkin's a lefty and, and, and you know, he, he, he but he, 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 you know, he, you get the sense he's much more on Tom Cruise's side as this idealistic lawyer. But, 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 but the, but the defense of um, the act of violence that he, that he writes for the Jack Nicholson character is absolutely fantastic. And he, and he, he, he doesn't, he, he he doesn't do that um, um, kind of shady thing of, of of trying to make his antagonists look silly and contemptible. Um, he, yeah. he really gives him the best possible argument in defense of his position. And that's what makes it such an iconic, you know, brilliant scene. It's one, of my, one of my problems with Parasite, and I love Parasite, as most people did, but, the, but you know, the, 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 the wealthy family in Parasite were kind of, were, were, were kind of I felt that like they were drawn to be, they, they were so obviously drawn to be contemptible. I felt it kind of let the story down a little bit. But, um, mm. but, but in, that, in, that, in that scene, in, in Aaron Sorkin's scene, I just thought that that's a really great example where both of those characters were absolutely equally convinced that they were on the side of the angels. And that's where you got this great, amazing kind of clash of, 
um, uh, narratives. And that's what great storytelling is. It's, 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 it's you know, it's, it, it should, in my view, sincere, be a sincere investigation into the human condition and human life. And you don't get that profound investigation unless you really do the best by your characters, antagonist and protagonist. You know, you, you, you give them the best possible arguments and send them at each other. All right. So this idea of profound investigation, it's, <laughs> I think it's, when, when reading your book, there was a, a few almost like scientific insights, more than a few, but a number of scientific insights that you offer both to readers and writers and just humans walking around the world. And one of them was this idea of theory of control. And Catherine, she's heard me talk about that because I've been trying to write <laughs> fiction for a number of years and just seem to be failing at really understanding my characters because I have a journalism background in nonfiction. And I just thought, okay, well, nonfiction is writing. It's putting words on paper in a smart way. I'll just do the same with fiction. And then not really understanding the depth of understanding of the motivation of your characters. But anyway, so now I latched on to this idea you write about in the book, Theory of Control. And I love the example you use from the book Remains of the Day. Can you explain this idea of theory of control? Yeah, so this is so, so. Ultimately, control is what we want. Control is what all living things want because we have to control the external environment to 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 get our deepest Darwinian aims of survival and reproduction. So we're always trying to control our environment. All animals are, but humans live in this kind of weird world of other people. You know, we're this highly social animal that 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 lives not really in the physical world, but in this nexus of other minds. So and what that means practically is that is that humans are trying to control other people mostly. And so so a good way of thinking about yourself or your characters is that every character has this theory of control. This if I do this, then I'm going to get what I want out of the world. And so 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 it's just a it's a good way of thinking about your kind of narrowing your character down. And 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 in you know the remains of the day is, is this novel, a brilliant novel um, by Katsu Ishiguru, um, uh, who uh, about uh, the, the, the protagonist is this guy called Stevens, and Stevens is his butler um, uh, for the aristocracy in England, and and he's absolutely convinced uh, of you know the superiority of the British Empire, and and, <laughs> and 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 he believes that the English are the best people in the world, and they're the best because. Um, they have this, this 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 idea of emotional restraint. You know, that awful stiff upper lip, emotional coldness that is so less so these days, but but historically has been such a curse on the English personality. And it, Stevens is the embodiment of that. And so 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 that's his theory of control: is if I act with emotional restraint, I'm going to get what I want out of the world. And because he's a butler to an aristocrat. He's absolutely right. You know that that's that's what aristos want from their butlers in that in that in that in that time and space. But this is a story, and so so it begins when that kind of theory of control is, is no longer viable. So the story is set um, at the end after the end of the Second World War, when the British Empire and British power is in in rapid decline. Um, Stevens no longer has his aristocratic boss at the at the, at the at Darlington Hall. It's an American businessman who's his new boss. So he, this throws him into a complete panic. Um, uh, because his American businessman starts being friendly to him and warm to him and joking with him, and he doesn't know how to respond. So his theory of control, his theory of who he has to be in order to get along and get ahead, n no longer works. And that forces him to change. He has no choice um, but to start questioning his own priors, his own ideas about how the world works and who he, who he has to be. And because it's a literary novel, like in, in, in bestsellers and blockbusters, if this was like Jaws or whatever, he'd go through this big transformation and he'd end up being this kind of Californian 
you know, going to going to a, going to a, like a Esalen Institute or somewhere and having an orgy. But 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 it's a literary novel, so he so 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 so, so it's mostly concerned with, with with him kind of analysing and questioning his you know his, his this theory of control about emotional restraint. And it's only it's literally in the last sentence of the novel that Ishiguro has him finally concede that maybe he'll be happier if he has a bit of emotional warmth. So, <laughs> so, 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 so that's the idea. And that's the difference between sort of literary, you know, storytelling and plays versus big Hollywood, you know, bestsellers, yeah. blockbusters is that those, it, it, if you want to get big crowds, you, you, you transform a character, you completely break apart their theory of control and build a new one. And that's what it gets everybody cheering. Uh, but, 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 you know, literary storytelling is much more like real life. You know, in, in reality, people don't, unfortunately, don't don't usually transform to that to, to that extent. So, so, so again, but it, but it's still this investigation into the human condition. It's, it's it, one of the, my favourite quotes about a story, which I didn't manage to get in the book, was by um, Ira Glass from This American Life. Um, he once told the story mm-hmm. of his of his of his how he got into storytelling, and he had this mentor whose name I forget. And his mentor said, um, told him uh, that um, the answer. The, the question that every story asks is, how should I live my life? And I thought that was so brilliant. You know, as soon as I heard it, I just, it sort of gave me goosebumps. And I think that's really true. And, and, and that's, that's partly what these literary stories are doing. It's like, you know, what happens if we live our life by this idea, as many people do, as certainly my parents do uh, in England, that emotional restraint is, 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 is the way to get what you want. What are the ramifications of that? What happens? And, and the remains of the day is really about all the incredible damage that that's done to Stephen's life and the life of the people around him. Well, I think in the in the same way that how should I live my life for a, an actual living, breathing human and not just a character, you know, when it, it comes to a writer or an author, um, you know, how should I write my book? And um, and obviously everyone's going to be different. And Philip Pullman, at least we're pretty sure he came up with this idea. He has this concept of you're either an architect or you're a gardener. So, you know, when you write your book, you're the architect who sits there with the blueprint and has to have the entire outline and the skeleton and, and the ending and the beginning and everything that's going to happen. Or you're a gardener and you're like, I found these seeds and I'm going to put them in the ground and I'm just going to nurture it and see what comes out of it. And Kate is very much an architect. I'm very much a gardener when it comes to her writing. Um, so I'm wondering, and obviously this is just going to be sheer opinion, but you know, the theory of control, I I have found that with my characters, uh, the theory of control kind of comes as I get to know them. I don't necessarily write down and have a scripted concept of what, how they want to live their life. I just kind of. I, she really hates it when I say this, well, but she I mean really it. feels them and knows them <laughs> and grows with them. I'm being serious, <laughs> um, and, and it, it baffles me. <laughs> but I'm so I'm wondering if there's just two different types of writers, like Philip Pullman says, or if you think that most authors would benefit from sitting down and really working this theory of control for each character before <laughs> they dive into it. I come from a nonfiction background, so I need. <laughs> Thank you, Will. <laughs> Us journalists got to stick together in these difficult times. <laughs> so, so, so that's it. And, and, and like you, Kate, I just, I just wanted somebody to tell me what to do. <laughs> just tell me what to do. It's so hard. It's not the same as journalism. It's much more difficult. Um, so, so that's what I wanted to do in the book is just to try and say, here's how you can tell a story that isn't going to be this cliched, you know, yeah. um, hero's journey thing. But the gardener is, it, 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 you know, it's just a different way of doing it. It's a different way of thinking about it. And if you've got the ability, and I wish I did, and I don't, to, 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 to to create amazing characters that are going to build amazing stories for you 
um, just by getting to know them and working into them. I just think that's a, a, a wonderful, incredible thing. Yeah, I'm curious because Catherine and I have been talking about this idea of Gardner versus architect lately. And one thing we've posited is that perhaps gardeners, and I'm not projecting this on you, but perhaps gardeners have like, are more like deeply empathetic and almost like have an intuitive nature to them. And I, we don't know each other. So perhaps you also have that. I don't, right? Like I, (laughs) I am definitely more like analytical and I, I'm overthinking. And so the idea that my character, that my characters, I would grow with them makes no sense to me. Like I need to tell them who they are beforehand so I can stick to that. Cause I'm not going to feel them. Does that, re- does that resonate with you? Yeah. I think there's a huge amount of truth to that really. And I think as you, you know, as, as I mean, you know, okay. As, as journalists that you're kind of, you know, you, you meet these amazing characters and you tell their story, but that you don't have to actually kind of create them. And, and yeah, I do think that's right. I, I, I also wonder if the gardeners are people who are, I don't know about you, Catherine, but often when, I, when I'm doing the lessons, the people who are um, more the gardeners are the ones who manage to read, you know, two novels a week or whatever it is. And I just go, wow, I'm a really slow yeah. reader. And I do wonder if people who have just uh, have had a life spent tearing through books, they just, they're able to, to, to do it much more intuitively uh, than the rest of us who, you know, t- take a couple of weeks, <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, like Kate said, analyze and think in much more. So I do wonder if, you know, if gardeners are able to do that just because they, 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 they've learned by osmosis. As I've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast, I was really blown away by the difference in writing fiction and writing nonfiction. I think that was a bit of naivete on my part, but like, cause I, I just finished a novel um, like last year, but I, I recognize very clearly now looking back on it that like my character develops development is not quite there. Like I'm really great at setting a plot and a world. Cause that's what I know from nonfiction, right? The plot is like whatever news item or that is going on and observation in the world. I'm really good at, but these like intrinsic character understandings that are so crucial that you write about to like getting people to invest in your characters is really where I struggled in this. And it kind of blindsided me, honestly, which <laughs> now I'm surprised that it blindsided me, but you, you also wrote a novel, which sounds so interesting. Cause Catherine also so interesting. Um, and I have, a, an awesome I have some cook. questions about but, some of um, your, yes. how would you articulate <laughs> the difference that you found between journalism and nonfiction and then moving into the fiction world? Oh, I love your questions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really difficult. I, and I had exactly the same experience. You know, I've I, I, been a journalist for um, years. It was all going well. I thought, well, I'll just write a novel. What and it's not, that, <laughs> it's really not that it's not that so easy, you know. And, and, and so, so so what happened was um, I, I told myself, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and work out how fiction works by trying to work a novel trying to write a novel story. And if I can get that novel published, then I'm going to really invest some time in trying to work out how stories work properly. Mm-hmm. And that became the book. So I, re- I actually wrote the novel before I wrote The Science of Story Setting. So I kind of wish I could go back and and, 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 <laughs> <Sometimes>. and <laughs> rewrite it. Um, uh, so, so I've had lots of people reading my Sons of storytelling and saying, "Oh God, I wish I'd read this and before I'd finished my, written my novel." And I was like, "I know exactly how you feel." <laughs> so so you know, I'm proud of the novel, but 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 yeah, I wish I could go back and and, and do it again. Um, yeah, and I think I, I just think when you're kind of looking at fiction writing from a distance, especially as a non-fiction writer, you think, "Yeah, well, just it's just making stuff up, aren't you? It's not that difficult." But actually, that feat of imagination is really hard work. Yep. It really is. It's a slog. It's difficult um so um 
that 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 was the main thing. It, it was it was it was really understanding that creating those vivid and believable worlds in detail and believable is graft. You know, it isn't just oh, you're just making it up. You know, it's it's really difficult, and in its own way, it's even more difficult than journalism because yes, journalism involves getting on planes and and someone's taking risks and you know chasing people down and all that stuff. But but you're given all the material you, you're yeah. there you write it down the people tell you their story and then you have you just arrange it um so so so, so yeah they they, they they both have their significant challenges and and any any non-fiction writer that kind of looks down slightly at fiction writers are in for a shock um i don't know if this is a rule for journalists as much as it is just for fiction but you know the rule um show don't tell when you're writing does that apply to journalism yeah, that applies to okay journalism so for writing in general but you you have this amazing Narrative. paragraph in the in the science of storytelling where you're talking about david mamet um, and he was working, he was ripping into his writers on a TV project because they weren't advancing the, the plot properly. Oh my God. I cannot even imagine what it would be like to be CC'd on a email from David Mamet in all caps being yelled at. Oh. Um, but anyway, so you, you go on to say that, um, you know, all the scenes should have a because between them and not, uh, and, and then, so can you, that to me, I just think as a writer is such a fantastic takeaway in the same way of. And it, it scares me for how many times I use the transition sentence and then in right. my journalism. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's actually a, a, a quote by Aline Brosh McKenna, who's a very talented screenwriter. And she wrote um, The Devil Wears Prada, amongst other sort of big blockbusters. And so and so that's really talking about cause and effect. One thing should lead to the next, should lead to the next, should lead to the next. And that sounds like a really simple thing to, um, to, to do. But again, it's one of those things that's deceptively difficult. You know, when you sit down and you write, you, you write your fiction – and you're, you're, you're trying to, you have to, which you have to, it's best to have your characters, you know, they make a decision and that causes a reaction. And then that reaction causes them to make a new decision. And it's just, that's how you, how you make your stories feel relentless and inevitable and kind of gripping. And, and it's really quite difficult because what you want to do is, and then there's this thing happens. Oh, oh, and then this thing has to happen too, because it's convenient for you mm -hmm. as the writer. For that thing to have to happen too, and so so lots of storytelling is very and then-y, and it, and and that's when it kind of um, often falls falls apart uh, in the sense that people get kind of confused. And just there's a big caveat to that is is that it's not that it's right and wrong. It's that the more cause and effect you have, the more easy to absorb and entertaining your story is going to be, um, and and the, the larger is likely to be your audience. Whereas you know um, literary storytelling, art house movie making is quite and then-y this thing happens and then this thing happens and then this thing happens, then you have to do that sort of hard cognitive work at connecting the dots. And that's why they call it hard work because it's hard work because you're having to do that work of connecting the dots. And that's how people have endless arguments and theories about what does this film motor mean by uh, this juxtaposition of this, that, and the other, you know, what's really going on here. Um, and, and, and those questions are asked about, you know, kind of high culture storytelling because th there's not much cause and effect in your hand is not at all being held. What would you say in the science of storytelling is the insight that you have going forward applied most to your writing? Um, I think in nonfiction, um, it is that cause and effect, um, you, you, you know, tr trying to, you know, really being um, uh, 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 kind of, uh, you know, evangelical, not evangelical is the wrong word, but really being absolutely hot on that cause and effect and making sure that there's frequent change. So, 
uh, you know, with the storytelling book, I wanted that to, you know, that to be quite cause and effect. See, one, one idea leading to the next, leading to the next. And I wanted to keep it short, as short a book as possible. So there's constant change and you're constantly giving people new stuff. And, and, and I think that was, you know, that, 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 that I preferred that about the storytelling book than any of my previous books, which I think were all 20,000 words too long. Um, <laughs> so, 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 so there's that one. But in terms of the fiction, in the, you know, when I'm writing fiction, um, it, it's really, the, you know, the, 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 the big idea for me from the book which is different from the other storytelling books that I've read is, is this idea that it's really character first I, I think because when you read a book or you watch a film you experience the plot so of course you naturally think that it's all about the plot and the plot is really important and and when I'm teaching nine times out of ten I say to people well, tell me about your story and they'll give me a, a plot breakdown this happens and this happens and this happens but but it's not the, the most important thing is the character and the plot mm-hmm. is there to plot against your character. The plot is designed around your character and your character's theory of control. And it's there to test that theory. It's there to test it and to uh, potentially either break it down or, you know, but it's to test it and test it and keep retesting it. So, so, so for me to, to, to have a really compelling story, you need to go character first. And then once you know who your character is and, and, and what their kind of central con- con- controlling idea about the world is, then you work out the plot. Then you start thinking about plot because the plot, as, as I say, has got to be designed to test that idea. Um, and, and where storytellers, I think, go wrong really commonly is that they come with a great idea for a story. What if this happened? What if there was a virus that you know uh, that, yeah. that shut down the world? And then you go, okay, that's a great idea. Um, who is it going to happen? And then you're Dan Brown, and you've sold <laughs> millions and millions of copies. You're Station Eleven. <laughs> you get this vague, um, really, they're they're really good looking, but no, they don't really know yeah. it, and yeah. you know, they're they're an orphan, and uh, you know, think, oh god. And, and you even you, know, you see big budget TV shows, multi million dollar movies being made that are like this. Great idea, but really boring character. Yep. So, so yeah. it's a mistake that, that, that even really successful financially storytellers um, make. So this this last question is a little bit of a non sequitur, but second I would, to last question, a second to last, true. Yeah. But I would be so upset if I didn't bring this up because you wrote a book called Will Store versus the Supernatural: One Man's Quest for the Truth About Ghosts, and I'm so excited about it. Um, <laughs> this is this is right up my alley, and I was just really hoping that you might. Want to share a little anecdote from the book for our listeners? Are ghosts real? Essentially, wait, don't give away or the whole. Don't give away me. the whole book. I just want to know. I, <laughs> I wrote that book in my twenties, about twenty years ago. I wrote that book. Now, um, it was great fun. You know, it was it was literally it was, it was one of the first stories I ever wrote. Uh, it, it was off the back of that, and um, I'll tell you about the yeah. So so it, I was I was about twenty five or something, and I went to the states to hang out with this guy called Lou Gentili, and Lou yeah. Gentili was. Um, <laughs> A central heating engineer by day, but at night he was a demonologist, <laughs> and he would go around, and he would go around um, uh, to people's houses and gather evidence that they were they were they were being haunted by ghosts because he's Catholic and the Catholic Church don't like giving exorcisms these days because it's not cool. So he so he so he, he tries to help them out, and I went there full of full of kind of cocky 25 year oldness and you know thinking this is going to be hilarious this guy's an idiot and actually he uh, it scared the shit out of me he, really? everything everything he said was going to happen it happened and mm. i was absolutely kind of petrified <laughs> yeah it was it was really it was really frightening so th- so that kind of really spanned me out and i was like what the hell happened and then i i ended up kind of pursuing that uh, over over the course of the book we're gonna have to pick that up i am definitely reading that book <laughs> all right well you're you are on free cookies the podcast so we have to know what your favorite 
cookie is? And <laughs> this is an important question. The most important question. Yeah, it, it reveals a lot about a personality. This is so difficult. You should have given me some warning about. <laughs> this, right. is, this is called the theory of cookie control. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So <laughs> thinking, you, do you have custard creams in the states? I don't think you do. What would be? Do you know what we'd call them here? Because I am really upset we, that we, we know, call. We, wait, 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 Jammy Dodgers. Yeah, that was it. I was gonna say. <laughs> But Will, do you know that we call Jamie Dodgers Linzer Tarts? What the fuck is that? <laughs> Who's going to buy a Linzer Tart when they could buy a Jamie Dodger? It's, come on. Isn't Jamie Dodger? It's fucking joke. The are like rectangular, but they're Oreos and, and the cream in the middle tastes kind of custardy. Okay. A rectangular Oreo? With custard in it? Oh my God. Um, so yeah, it's kind of custard flavored cream. And I guess it's the same, the same kind of thing as an Oreo, but, but custardy. Yeah, so those are great. And th- those have been around for, for decades. I mean, I've got them. I mean, they must be from the 20s or before. Th- th- those are a great uh, bridge cookie, the, the, the custard cream. You know, as soon as we, you know, I put the phone down, I'm going to think of I'm going to think of it. But um, And I will be thinking well, but okay, of it but, as well. But, but, but as, as a follow-up, because <laughs> this is really important to have a follow-up here. If you had to make a cookie in, like, your house, what would, what would be the cookie that you would crave? Crave? If I had to make a cookie? Right, like not an Oreo. <laughs> yeah. I would make one. You know, I love oaty ones. <gasps> oh. Yes. Oh, I love oats too. Kate's a big oatmeal okay. raisin fan. In- Not the popular choice, by the way. <laughs> but no, my favorite <laughs> cookie is in in the UK. We have a cookie called a hobnob. And a oh. hobnob. <laughs> it sounds. God, I love the English. It's an oaty cookie, but they but they get chocolate hobnobs, which are kind of chocolate covered oaty cookies. Oh. But I just haven't eaten them for so long because when you look at the calories, it's like eighty calories per um, cookie, and then you eat the ho- you cannot help it. You eat. Right. The- you eat like you, is it them. like a dip and tea kind of cookie? Like a oh, like a digestive? Tr- I want all the details. <laughs> Good dip and tea, but it's unnecessary because because you've got the chocolate on it. You- okay. Oh, well, you, you, I think you you slayed those last questions. You really did. It's really good. That was next level. Thank you. <laughs> Linzer tart. Oh my Go god. Fuck yourself, Linzer tart. Uh, um, this was awesome. Thank you for such a wonderful yeah, conversation. Thanks, no, thanks for your really brilliant questions. It's really great to be uh, interviewed by writers because you can get proper nerdy. Yes. yes. <laughs> to, to be continued once we read the Supernatural book. <laughs> thanks, thank Will. you so much, Kate and Catherine. Bye. All right, bye. And that was Mr. A Rap. Will Store. Coming to us live from so lovely. the outskirts of London. He's so, so lovely. Yes. We London. want to be friends with you now, Will. Yes, yes, we do. Will, if you are listening back to the podcast that we taped and there is a friendship, a possibility, if you felt the same way that we felt, drop me a line. We could maybe Will, you, get you dinner are together the protagonist in Oxford. To my Jonathan Reese Myers. Okay, so he's the villain and Will Store is the hero yeah. of the story. Yeah. Okay. I can get with that. This podcast is produced by Lindsay Collins of F&B Radio. And you can check us out on social media, on Instagram at freecookiespodcast or hit us up at freecookiespodcast.com. Now, before you guys turn off the podcast, because now is the time when you don't listen anymore, just keep listening because you have- Did you finally come up with a villain? No, no, no. You have to follow the Inky Phoenix- on Instagram. Where we will discuss villains because it's a book club. At the Inky Phoenix. This is, this is a tough leap people make because make, probably they're in their car and they're listening and like then they have to go to Instagram and type in T-H-E Inky Phoenix. But they can do it because 
My wife. The only thing you spelled out was the. And then, I, well, I don't know how to spell the rest of it. That's all tricky. <laughs> I just got to go with the easy word. But you, my wife is so excited about this book club and I just, I, I need to celebrate it and promote it as much as possible because it's just such a beautiful little space I that you've created so anyway uh, re review us and rate us and write to us and, and check us out on patreon if you want to support the show Boom. we are patreon.com forward slash free cookies hey Lindsay, did you read the article i sent about dinosaur erotica last week yes okay you need to I'm going to read it live next. Hey, next episode, I'm reading it live. If our producer does read Instagram live and read that article I for will. everybody. That's I'm the like, Instagram live that everybody's waiting they're for. They're like, this article from 2011, people miss it. Will you be doing voices? Will you be acting it out? <laughs> this is why the best parts of the show happen at the end. What about, what about, um, it was my dinosaur what about climax not what, enough to end on? <laughs> and I want more. What about a brontosaurus? <laughs> I think we're out. <laughs>